Alright guys, welcome to episode 74 of the Walking Closer Podcast. This is Jesus the Man, part 4. Can't tell you how many times I've tried to start this. In fact, this is the actual second, um, well, potentially what would be the second full recording. In other words, I have already recorded the entire podcast. And it did not work at all. Like, I went through 20, 30 minutes of talking about what I want to talk about and didn't work. Oftentimes when you record podcasts, if you do this, you understand that uh, you start and stop sometimes more often than you want want to. You just can't get it going. It's just, uh, I don't know, you say something stupid and it's like, nah, I can't put that in there. Too much editing or you just, he's not feeling it. And, uh. Man, I was feeling it. I got the whole thing done. And I went to play it back, and it's just a bunch of screeching. Anyway. <laughs> so, round two. Okay, so Jesus the Man, part four. Let's kind of back up and look at where we've been. And um, wrap this thing up. We This whole podcast... Um, the idea came from just me thinking about how much of the humanity of Jesus is oftentimes overlooked, maybe how much we don't think we know about Jesus's you know experiences as being a human. We um, tend to focus so much on just simply his divinity. It's kind of hard to make a connection there, which really defeats the purpose, um, really, I think, of part of what was going on with Jesus, and that is showing us what it looks like to live as truly human, as God has designed us to live, and like how we're created to live, and uh, how to navigate all of this. If we can't make a connection with Jesus, all this stuff just seems otherworldly. You know, he's like this, this mystic that just hovers, hovers across the ground. Um, and so there's... A, Difficulty, I think, sometimes in really making the connection with Jesus. And I think we can even learn some things about ourselves when we look at the humanity of Jesus as well. So that's why I wanted to do this. Uh, what do we know about it? And are there some things there that may be a little more obvious, even though we don't quite see them? But once we see them, it's like, ah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, I think so. And so we kind of covered some of this. We talked about Jesus. We first started with his parents, right? Mary, Joseph. Um, Then we talked about his childhood and took a specific look at his relationship with his mother. And uh, then we looked at what Jesus might look like. Um, Oh, yeah, even in that we talked about the Shroud of Turin. And what's interesting about this is, you know, I took a a break last week, and so... um, but last Sunday, I got this contact from this man named Joe Marino. He used to be a Benedictine monk, and he has done a lot of research. He studied the Shroud intensely for about 43 years. And uh, he claims to know all the original researchers, the major Shroud researchers from the 70s that are still alive. And, um, claims to have one of the biggest personal English language collections in the world writings about the shroud. Um, 
He's written a lot about it. He's an author. He's written some books about it. Um, yeah. And so he contacted me and sent me a lot of additional research and information, resources. So uh, I responded back to him. Say, hey, I'll navigate through all of this and hopefully maybe be able to have a conversation, be fascinated to learn his story from him, you know, and um, maybe some things that he's learned, what he's gathered from his own research. So, yeah, if you're interested in the shroud, um, maybe we'll do talk a little bit more about it um, in a future podcast once I go through all the resources that he's, he sent my way. And, uh, you know, we will share them with you as well. So, yeah, pretty neat little uh, thing happened there with the Shroud of Turin. I'm fascinated by it. I just I just am. I'm just super fascinated by it. And I like to hear both sides, right? I like to hear all the pros, like all the people who are like, yeah, this is, this is they, they really believe that this is, um, you know, or at least they believe it lends itself more towards being potentially you know, the burial cloth of Jesus. And then I also like to hear the, uh, the the skeptics and what they have to say. Uh, there's lots to learn from both sides. So I find it fascinating. Maybe we'll go through it. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But I do plan on reaching out to him and having a conversation. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll have him on a podcast. Ah, that'd be fun. All right. So anyways, back to where we are. So I decided to wrap this up, um, this little series up. Uh, by, you know, I don't know, some final things I want to talk about when it comes to Jesus, the man. And um, those things have to do with, the f- I guess we call the final hours before his death. These are uh, they're these th- intense expressions of his humanity that we find um, in what's commonly referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. So, which is fascinating within itself. So why do we call it the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, John says there was, there's this place. So this is after uh, Jesus uh, washes the feet of his disciples, and you know he breaks bread and 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 uh, you know gives it to them, and then he he takes this cup and he says, "This is my covenant, the blood of the covenant. This is the bread. This is my body." And then uh, he takes his you know disciples with him. And they go to this place, and John says that wherever they were, there was a garden that they entered. And uh, then Jesus, when Jesus is arrested, and later Peter is approached by someone who was there with those who came to arrest Jesus, uh, he said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So obviously there's this place. Now, garden, what does that mean? What are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, literally the word, I think, deals with a cultivated piece of land. Um. Now, Matthew and Mark calls the place they went Gethsemane. They don't use the word garden. We attach that. So we say, all right, well, it's a garden, and it's Gethsemane, so it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Luke says it's on the Mount of Olives. And evidently, this is a place Jesus had a habit of going. And so what's interesting about this is Gethsemane means oil press. And we assume, since it's on the Mount of Olives, that we are talking about the place of an oil press, or specifically for olives, and uh, what that looks like. What's interesting, furthermore, is that these olive presses were oftentimes located inside caves. Now, was it an active press during the time of Jesus? I don't know, right? Were they actually uh, olive trees? Was it an actual... 
uh, place that was cultivating these things during the time. We assume, but we don't know. You go there today, there's like maybe I think I heard 12 olive trees in this little garden that's been created. It does not date back to the time of Jesus. Uh, these trees go back, I think, to the 12th century. They're all connected to the same from one plant, which is fascinating. But it's all connected to this outside this little church in that area. Um, but in this area, that's uh, the site of uh, Gethsemane, um, there's a cave where these events actually took place. And it's an extremely large cave. It's about 40 to 60 feet, 40 by 60. Um, pretty big. And um, there's a good chance that the events that happened with Jesus in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane actually took place inside this cave or maybe just outside of this cave, uh, at least some of those events, which is pretty interesting. Um, so, yeah, that's how we say Garden of Gethsemane. So Mount of Olives, Gethsemane is mentioned as this area where there's this, uh, you know, olive press and uh, Mount of Olives, olive trees, and we're told that they entered into something that's referred to as a garden, which would be specifically like this area. Don't, you know, don't think about like, like this, like this rose garden or this place you go and, and, um, you know, it's a Zen garden. I, I don't think of it that way. Um, it is this area and it was obviously it was conducive for doing what Jesus is doing because, well, evidently it was something he did quite often, um, when he was in this area. So that's how we got the term garden of Gethsemane. And so that's the location. That's where we're at. Now let's go to the events and explore some of these expressions that uh, I'm talking about here. Um, look at the events on, on what what could be called the night Jesus was betrayed, the night of his betrayal. It was uh, it it's what happens before the betrayal that I want to focus on. It's a time that is filled with agony and this pain where Jesus is praying. And there's automatically something different about this scene. It's so different than, than the other depictions of Jesus. Um, the, just the, the extent of sadness and the distress it seems so unlike like Jesus. It's like it, it seems so out of character for what you might expect of Jesus. Where, you know, you look at this scenario and it's like, where's his confidence? <laughs> like, where's where's the assurance that we have seen in him so many other times? Um, we we've seen him in scenarios where he right he wills something to be and it happens. Situations where he commands the impossible and the impossible happens. And, and, and this scenario, though, it's such, oh man, it's such a contrast to maybe, you know, what we have seen and the pictures that we might have in our minds as we go through uh, the narratives of Jesus' life and the various gospel accounts. And there is something just different about this. But this event, it does something for us, and it reminds us of the humanity of Jesus, which is, is really easy to forget when all you seem to see is Jesus 
defying the odds, right? Uh, defying natural laws, going around healing and, and casting out things. He's like this superhuman until this moment. Now he's brought down to his knees. Um, he's like Superman, taken down by a kryptonite. Reminds me of a of a dad who has this this hard crusted exterior. He's tough. He's a hard worker, very physically demanding appearance, and strong and resilient and rough hands and very intense, but he's brought to his knees by the voice of his three year old daughter. I think of myself when when I have to go away on a, a work trip and I will leave behind my wife and four daughters. Now you might hear that and either you relate to me or you're probably thinking, well, I bet you can't wait to get out of the house. I can't bet you can't wait to, you know, you're drowning in estrogen and so I bet you can't wait to come ashore or maybe you're ready to re re up your man card or you know, some, some uh something like that. But honestly, yeah, when those times come, I really don't want to do it. I don't want to leave my wife and four daughters. I, I know it's something I have to do, and it, it will be for the best in the long run. But at the moment, I don't want to go. I, I don't want to leave them behind. I don't want to miss the opportunity to experience something with them. I can plan retreats all day long and I can plan trips and I have, you know, these these ideas and design things to what can be accomplished and set a vision for it all and you know put things in place. Man, when it comes down, when it comes time to do it. Yeah, I'm thinking twice about it. I don't want to miss a thing with them. Yeah, so Jesus is in this situation where his humanity is on full display. He's praying to find another way or let this cup pass for me. But then he adds, however, let your will be done. And so there's this, this event presents the, the conflict that he's facing that we have, have to face at times as well. It, it's conflict in the mind and the heart. This this inner conflict that is that is re- that, that that he's wrestling with, and it's a real struggle. It's a it's a part of the struggle of of being human. And Jesus goes through it. And man, he wrestles with it. We see him like we haven't quite seen him before. But when he comes out of the Gethsemane. He comes out a determined man. He he seems much stronger and serene. Like like he he seems to maintain this composure for for quite some time for the rest of the night and to the next day. Some people will argue on the cross. My my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The humanity of Jesus says I'm not going there. But at least for some time, he maintains his composure to the point where he's actually on the cross, and this renewed strength that he seems to have. It's, it's something he gains through his experiences in Gethsemane and whatever happened there, what he's wrestling with, and it's in the midst of prayer. 
And all four gospel accounts paint the same picture that, that it was in this time of prayer that he gains his resolve and, and the conflict that, that, that he was wrestling with. It, it was settled. And that's what prayer does. <laughs> changes us. Yeah, changes us. So maybe we can learn a few things from Jesus in those moments as well. Then later, this experience that Jesus goes through when, when the church has momentum and things are happening, and when this event, this experience is talked about, it's talked about the language that is used. Is, yeah, remember back in the day, Jesus in the days of his flesh or human weakness, which, by the way, he readily took upon himself, right? You find this language in the letter to the Hebrews. The writer talks about the humanity of Jesus as something that it was, it was, it was an experience, right? It's a matter of experience. And so in his humanity, he, he didn't just assume flesh and blood, but he assumed the experience. And I would suggest the total experience, right? And that's hard for us sometimes, but that's really the picture that this begins to paint for us, that these are the things he experienced so that he might, as the Hebrew writer says, things like, well, yeah, listen, he, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. He suffered and thereby he learned obedience. He, he became like us. It's something he experienced that he might taste death. Yeah, he became like us. He experienced what it's like to be us so that he might experience what it would be like to die so that he could conquer it. And he says, he says in another place, he shares in the, in the same flesh and blood so that he could taste, experience death, and in death destroy him who had the power of death. And so over and over again, you have this language of experiences, right? Even, even it says that he was inwardly changed through his experience, thereby becoming perfected. He was made perfect by the things he suffered, the Hebrew writer says. Yeah, Jesus was changed by his experiences. Fascinating. Human. <laughs> the humanity of Jesus on full display. And then at the same time, there's, there's always this lingering thing, right, with uh, Gethsemane and what was Jesus specifically struggling with. I've heard several explanations, explained it several ways. You know, I, I like to... I like to talk about it. I like to consider it and think about it. Um, it's fun for me. Fun. It's obvious this is all this has this all has to do with the cross. But was there something specific driving the con- the conflict that he had? Was it that he just really didn't want to die? Was it that he didn't want to somehow be separated from God in, in the process? You know, people point to this whole "My God, My God, but have you forsaken me?" saying that Jesus was dreading that moment, knowing it would happen, and he didn't want to be separated from God. Uh, well, plausible, I guess, assume. Uh, a good friend of mine, Curtis Thornburg, he, uh, he's been on the podcast, and we've gotten to talking about this, and he presented this idea that I never considered before, but what if it was just the fact that Jesus did not want to leave these people he loved so much? If there's another way. Can we do it that way? Maybe so I don't have to leave. I don't know. 
I think a good argument can be made for this, especially from John's gospel, which which is fascinating. Maybe we'll flesh that out a little bit later on sometime. But regardless of what it is, you know, when I, I relate to this because I think back to my own self and my, I, I don't want to leave my kids, my wife. I don't want to go and do this thing. Um, yeah, I can relate to that. I can re- I connect with that, and I think that that demonstrates the humanity of Jesus. But regardless, regardless of what conclusion you come to and how you try to make sense of all this, I think you have in your hands the full humanity of Jesus on display. That's what you got. So yeah, there, the humanity of Jesus that we don't need to forget. And in fact, I think we need to focus on it. And when we do this, oddly enough, it helps to paint a picture of even what we go through, helping us even understand our own experiences. Like we have shared experiences with Jesus. Figure that one out. We Think about it. We have shared experiences with Jesus. What it means to to be human for us is what it meant to be human for him. That, That sometimes can be hard to reconcile in our minds, but it's worth wrestling with. Right? Like, he was affected by his own experiences, as we are. He was, he was changed by his own experiences, as we are. And we can look even at him and learn from him and how he approached and how he responded to his, his experiences. And I think thereby learning what it really looks like to be human in navigating this world in its present condition. Uh, in light of our own present conditions, right? Like, I, and I think that's the thrust of, yeah, why I do this podcast. I think Jesus can lead us to actually love being alive in this world. I think Jesus can actually lead, lead us to actually, I don't know, love being human. Yeah. The humanity of Jesus, I think, can teach us that. That's why I did the podcast. So, yeah. Thanks for joining me on this series. And uh, I hope that you've gained something from this. And I hope you will continue to join me on the Walking Closer podcast. So, yeah. Join me next time. We explore becoming like Jesus from the inside out.